Welcome to the study of the book of Revelation, taught by Michael Fitzgerald, senior pastor of Clifford Baptist Church. These lessons come from a Wednesday night study of the book, so the format is more of a classroom setting. Included in this Revelation series are written study notes, which can be accessed with each lesson in the series. We are one step deeper in the book of Revelation. We're opening chapter 14 tonight, so take that book of God's Word in your lap and open it with me to Revelation chapter 14. Before we open this chapter, let me back up to remind you that we are within the Great Tribulation in this study right now. That's on your sheet. We are within the Great Tribulation that is going to take place on this earth in the last seven years of this earth's history. This is a time which certainly has not yet come But when it does, God is going to deal with death and sin and unrighteousness and wickedness and hell and Satan uh, and hard-hearted people who have expressed no faith for Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Great Tribulation is seven years long. Nations are going to be confused and nature is going to be in turmoil. Nature is going to be travailing at that time. If you remember earlier as we studied in Revelation, the earth and the ecosystem of the earth in these days of the Great Tribulation is beginning to shut down. Trees are dying. Grass is dying. The seas are changing. Life in the seas is dying. And so nature is in travail Nature is in turmoil even at this point. While the world is in turmoil, even nature itself is, and the earth is in the process of dying. Now, within this time of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist shows up on the world scene, and you remember that though he is the son of Satan, he comes across as charismatic, as lovely, as a great world leader, very powerful, And the world is attracted to him. Though he is filled with the venom of Satan himself, he comes across as a very charismatic leader. He is handsome. He is debonair. And yet his father is Satan. And he focuses on witness, on wickedness and destruction and death. And of course, you know that the Antichrist has one main agenda, and that is to lead the world away from the salvation and the love of Jesus Christ. And he is going to spearhead a great persecution against all believers. He will murder believers in the Lord Jesus. In this day, you will remember, and we will study it more tonight, this is a time of great evangelism. There will be many, many saved in these days of the Great Tribulation. That's kind of the focus of this passage tonight. We'll get a little deeper into that. But if you remember chapter 13, the chapter prior to where we begin tonight, the Antichrist institutes a world financial system or a worldwide tracking system in which people will be marked on the right hand or on the forehead in order to buy and to sell goods. That means anyone who refuses that mark of the Antichrist, the beast, will literally starve to death, literally go without, not be able to buy or to maintain a home, not be able to maintain a job. If you do not bear the mark of the Antichrist, you absolutely cannot conduct business in this world. 
That is the persecution on the believer. This mark of the beast identifies the bearer with Satan. And Christians are absolutely forbidden by God to receive that mark. However, not receiving the mark sets up the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to great persecution. But the absence of the mark identifies that person as a child of God. They will be punished in starvation and deprivation, but they will not bow down to Satan. They will not bow down to his son, the Antichrist. Revelation teaches us that those who bear that kind of punishment, those who will stand up in the face of Satan and the face of the Antichrist and not bear the mark, though they will be punished on earth, they will be rewarded in heaven. God is going to recognize their commitment to his son and they will be greatly rewarded in heaven, but they're going to have to endure so much on this earth. Those who bear the mark of Satan will be cast into hell. That's what the word says. So Revelation describes this awful span of seven years of history, which is still in the future that we know as the great tribulation. But with the advent of computers and with barcodes and with worldwide communication, I do not believe that these days that we're reading about right now are so very far into our future. I can't say they're going to come tomorrow. I don't know if it will be within the next year or even 10 years, but I believe that these days are drawing close. There's something in the spirit of the believer that identifies with this passage of scripture that these days are drawing close. Do you believe that? So many people I've talked to say they believe that the day is drawing nearer and nearer. So as we open chapter 14, uh, we're going to have a, a, new, a new angle now. While we have been dealing with the, the travail of the great tribulation, tonight we're not going to see people in punishment, but rather in chapter 14, we're going to see people in heavenly reward. So this is, is somewhat of a, a sigh of relief that we're getting to see reward in this place. Uh, when we were covering chapter 7, I taught you about God sealing 144,000 evangelists. And God seals them with his seal of the word of Jesus Christ. And he seals them with protection that they are going to be divinely wrapped in his arms. That they are going to absolutely be able to carry out the task of evangelism which, they get, which he gives to them for this period of time. They would be sent out in the middle of the great tribulation. They're going to preach Jesus Christ unhindered. Though the world is in such turmoil, the 144,000 evangelists will be able to preach Jesus Christ in an unhindered way because God is going to protect them and God is going to draw the lost who enduring the great tribulation to hear the good news of Jesus Christ through these evangelists. According to Revelation chapter 7, these 144,000 evangelists are Jews and they have come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So they have converted from Judaism to be becoming a completed Jew, coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord. And if you remember, 12,000 from every one of the tribes of Judah are chosen to be the 144,000 evangelists. They go to all parts of the globe and millions come to salvation because of the preaching that goes on by this large group of evangelists. 
Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 tells us that as a result of the 144,000 evangelists sharing the good news of Jesus, a great multitude comes to Christ as Savior, a multitude that cannot even be numbered. There are so many millions coming to the Lord Jesus as Savior through the the evangelistic area uh, efforts of this 144,000. So God appoints then this number of saved Jews to go out into the world to bring the world to Christ. He seals them. He protects them as they charge out into the work of drawing the world to Christ. Now, tonight we open chapter 14. And what we see is in chapter 7, God seals and commissions the 144,000 to go out. In chapter 14, their work is done. They have completed what they were sent to the world to do. The earthly mission is over. The 144,000 are tonight, as we see in chapter 14, in heaven. They are now with Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So we're going to read the first five verses of Revelation chapter 14. Hear these words from God's Word. And again, we hearken back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, that tells us we will be blessed because we have heard these words tonight. John writes this, And I looked... And lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile. For they are without fault before the throne of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of these five verses from his holy, precious, and inerrant word. Now, according to verse 1 of chapter 14, these evangelists do not bear the mark of the beast on their bodies. But rather, God the Father's name is inscribed on their foreheads. They totally belong to the Lord God. No association with Satan whatsoever. They do not bear his mark on their bodies, but rather they bear the name of God the Father on their foreheads. They have come through the great tribulation. They have been victorious. They have done exactly what God commissioned and protected them to do as they preach the gospel of the living Lord Jesus Christ. And as millions upon millions were saved, and at the end of their job, Every one of those 144,000 evangelists, every one of them, and that's important for us to note, every one of them comes to heaven. They have accomplished their evangelistic task. Everyone in the end who was sealed by God to do his work have come to be with him in heaven. Why is that important? There is an assurance in that thought for you and for me. When you and I were saved, 
When we truly said yes to Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, we were sealed by his protection. We were sealed by his promise of grace that comes to us by way of the old rugged cross as Jesus shed his blood for us. We were sealed for salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says this, In him you also trusted, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So here's the promise for us. When a person, you or I, your son or your daughter, someone you love, when someone in our lives, including ourselves, knows Jesus as Lord and Savior, we have the permanent seal of God on our life. And the devil can do nothing to erase that seal or take it away. We have eternal security as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the eternal security of the believer. It is not what we do that keeps us saved. It's what God does for us. It's because God holds to us with his mighty hand that we remain saved. I'm thankful salvation and remaining saved does not rest on my shoulders. I would fall away from salvation because I'm a sinner. But God Almighty is the one who seals me and holds me and holds you so that we remain saved. In salvation, I believe in the security of the believer. So the 144,000 are sealed. They have done their work and they have now been called home. They are with Jesus and there is music, there is singing, there is celebration as these 144,000 gather around their God. Now, I know that as we study Revelation, so much of it has to do with punishment and persecution and sorrow. But as we open chapter 14 tonight, uh, at its deepest level, the book of Revelation is a, a book of assurance for the believer that you and I are not going to have sorrow and punishment, but rather the believer is going to have eternal joy. We're going to be eternally with our Lord. So while the lost can be upset by what they see in Revelation, the saved can be built up and joyful because we're going to be with our Lord and with our Savior. I want you to notice that it says harps provide music during the celebration. If I were translating this passage, I would say it'd be guitars would be uh, providing uh, the music. But uh, harps and harpists are playing. Look at verse 3, chapter 14. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. So this unique group of evangelists, converted Jews, who took the good news of Jesus to the world and millions were saved by their words of preaching to the world, they have a unique song that's on your sheet, a unique song that belongs only to them. This song is theirs alone. For eternity, this 144,000 will be the only ones allowed to sing this particular special song composed by God Almighty, given to them because they had accomplished their task of world evangelism. You know, when I read this passage, I can't help but think of my daughter, Carrie, when she was just a little thing, two or three years old, she created her own song. And it had three words in it. Ho, ba, di. I don't know what they mean. She doesn't know what they mean. 
But she had a little tune, and it was just ho-ba-dee, ho-ba-dee, ho-ba-dee. So when I learned the tune, I'd sit her beside me, and I'd say, let me sing with you. And I'd start, she'd sing, and I'd start. She'd say, no! It was my song. She didn't want anybody to sing with her. She loved to entertain us, but she did not want us to sing with her because it was her song and her song alone. That's exactly what we see here in Revelation. Uh, you and I in heaven will not be one of this 144,000 great tribulation evangelists. Uh, we will not be able to sing this song. I pray we will be able to hear this song, but we will not be able to sing it. Uh, if we were to walk up beside one of them and attempt to sing, that one of those evangelists would say, no, this is my song. This is not your song. You can't sing it with me. But I believe from this passage that you and I will also have a new song, that we will have a special song, that we will have a song of praise before our Lord and our God when we accomplish the work that God gives to us. We're not uh, converted Jews going out into the great tribulation. That song is reserved for them. But when you and I go out into the fields of harvest as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and when we accomplish our work for him, whatever your work is for him, whether it's teaching a Sunday school class, preaching from a pulpit, giving a cold cup of water in Jesus' name, whatever it is, you're going to have a song of praise to give back to the Lord because you and I accomplished our work for him. Different work than 144,000 and yet work for him nonetheless. We will have that song in heaven. The sad thing is, I believe that there will be Christians who have a heavenly home, however, they will have no song. And the reason I believe that is they are saved by grace alone. They're saved because they placed their faith and their belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior, but they did nothing to take the good news into the world or to see someone else saved or to share that good news with someone who needed Jesus as Savior. So that means if a person does know Christ as Savior, but they do no work in the kingdom, then it's logical they won't have a song to sing. I want to sing a song. <laughs> I want Jeffrey Campbell to sing a song with me in tune. But I truly believe that there will be those who will have no song to sing because they had no ministry to thank God for, nothing to give him in praise. And so this can be a warning of God for us that we need to tell somebody about Jesus. <laughs> we need to reach out in Jesus' name. That's our commission. You know, I think it's pretty sad that there are some who would choose to watch TV, which is very worthless, than to come to pray and, and come to hear God's word. If you're more concerned about what you have than what you're willing to give, be careful about your commitment to the Lord Jesus as Savior. We are wanting to have a song to sing. We're wanting to give praise to a Savior for, for all eternity. I know I've said this before, but I think about it so often. These few years, and I am probably two-thirds through my few years, this is our only opportunity in all eternity to bring a soul to Jesus as Lord and Savior. When we get to heaven, that won't be our ministry anymore. 
And so my prayer daily is, Lord, don't let me miss that opportunity. My prayer for you and for our church is don't let us miss those opportunities to reach out to those who need Christ as Lord and Savior because the days slip by so quickly. You know, the psalmist says that our days are like grass and they slip away so quickly and and it's gone. It's like a vapor. Don't waste a day. Work on the song that we're going to sing together because we accomplished our mission in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to also notice as we move on here that the 144,000 are separated. Look at verse 4. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now, apparently, all 144,000 were men, male. Did they ever marry? No. They did, never shared the most intimate act of marriage. And certainly there is a reason of God that the 144,000 evangelists did not marry. Remember... These men were living during the pressure cooker of the great tribulation times. And though they were protected by God, daily their lives were persecuted and affronted because of the ministry that they carried out. They were sealed, they were protected, but they were still confronted. They still bore that pain. In the great tribulation, the times are going to be very, very abnormal So they couldn't experience a normal family life. There was no time for a normal family life. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah lived during very difficult days. He lived prior to and during uh, the the Babylonian captivity, which we have been studying uh, in uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, So Jeremiah was one who was very familiar with trying days. I want you to hear these words from Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Write that reference down. Jeremiah 16, 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came also unto me, saying, Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. So God says to Jeremiah, I have a specific work for you. This is a very difficult time. The Israelites are going to go into Babylonian captivity. You are their prophet, and you don't have time for a normal family. So God says to Jeremiah, you shall not marry, and you shall not have children. I have a specific work for you, and you won't have time for that normal family life. As we study the book of Daniel, it is very obvious that Daniel did not marry. He was in a, a, the pressure cooker of Babylon. He was a godly man and a godly leader in Babylon. He did not have that time for family life. So these tribulation saints did not marry because of this terrible time of human history in the great tribulation. And in their un, unmarried state, they never committed adultery. They never were immoral, but rather, according to the Bible's words, they were sexually pure as virgins. Now, they're Physical sexual purity points further to the kind of people they were and the purity that they carried in their lives. I believe that this sexual purity points further to their complete moral purity of character. Uh, They were not just 
sexually pure, but they were spiritually pure. Their lives were pure in the eyes of God. These elect servants of God did not step out of God's will. They remained faithful to the Lord. They never committed spiritual adultery. They never committed human adultery, but at points further that they did not commit spiritual adultery against their God. They never got into any sort of false religion, never followed the Antichrist, but rather they remained spiritually pure in their commitment to their God and to their Savior, Jesus. Now, in terms of their spiritual purity, they were virgins. You see, their physical virginity speaks to their spiritual virginity. Now, you know that as the bride of Christ, the church is the bride of Christ, and we are to be pure. We are to be faithful to our husband. So our human lives as individuals, you know, we're supposed to be moral. We're supposed to be trustworthy. We're supposed to live righteously. But our physical lives are pointing toward the spiritual purity that we have with our husband, Jesus Christ, as the bride of Christ. We are to give ourselves to Jesus alone as his bride. We are to be faithful to him alone. He is our husband alone. Paul describes it, if you would like to turn with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Paul writes this, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now remember, he's writing to a church. So he's saying, you are to be spiritually pure, so as you come before your husband, your purity shines forth as believers in the Lord Jesus. So Paul writes in those very same terms to the church at Corinth. These 144,000 saints are totally surrendered to God. They follow the Lord wherever he directs them to go. And we need that same purity. We need that same devotion. We need that same commitment to follow the Lord as his church, as his bride, wherever he would take us. When we reach heaven, we want to stand before our husband in purity. We want to stand before the one who gave himself to purchase our lives with forgiveness and purity. Now, we might be tried, we might be tempted, we might be tested, and I believe we're going through days of increasing testing in these days that are coming before us. And yet we are to remain pure in following our husband, Jesus Christ, at all cost. The motto I understand of the French Foreign Legion has something to say to us. The motto of the French Foreign Legion is this, if I stumble, pick me up. If I falter, push me on. If I retreat, shoot me. There is no retreating in the French Foreign Legion. And as far as being morally pure for our husband Jesus, there is no retreat in that. So tonight we are studying just these very few verses dealing with the 144,000 evangelism saints of the Great Tribulation. But here's what we learn in this as we draw this down to a close. You will notice again in verse 5 it says, In their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. They were absolutely pure to their God. May those words describe us 
and being pure before our Savior. Three things we learn tonight as we draw this down to a close. Number one, when you are saved, you are sealed by God. You are eternally secure in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and Satan cannot touch you. In 10 billion years, Satan cannot lay claim on you. The second truth we learn, when you are sealed, you are sent. Just as the 144,000 evangelists were sealed and sent into the world, you and I are sealed in salvation, and we're sent out to be messengers of the living Lord Jesus Christ. Are we doing that? Are we accomplishing that task? The 144,000 accomplished their task. That's why they have a new song before God in heaven. Are we accomplishing what God has set us aside to do in these days? That should be our prayer every morning when we wake up. Lord, you have a purpose for me this day. Help me, lead me, guide me, strengthen me to fulfill my purpose for this day because you sealed me, send me where you want me to go. And then the third thing we learn is this. Jesus, our husband, expects us to be pure as his bride. We cannot put money or possessions or self on the same throne as Jesus Christ. No other earthly relationship can take the place of our relationship with our Lord and our Savior, Jesus we are to remain pure in thought and in word and in deed. Now, of course, we are to be moral people. We are to live our lives in a moral way. But remember that all that we do are point, is pointing to the fact that we want to be spiritually pure before Jesus, the one who is the husband to the bride of the church. So tonight, Brothers and sisters, I pray that we will commit ourselves to continue and to continue growing in serving the Lord because we are sealed and saved and sent so that we might bring this world to him. And in all that we do, we pray that we are true to our Savior who loves us and who is our husband, the husband of the church, the one who gave himself for us. Tonight, finally... If there is one person in this room or one person who will listen to this study one day who has never come to Jesus as Lord and Savior, tonight he wants you as his very own. He died on the old rugged cross that he might save you. And when he saves you, he will seal you for all eternity. This moment, if you say yes to him, if you say, Lord, I am a sinner, and I know in sorrow I need to repent of that which I have done against you, those sins that I've committed against you. Lord, I ask you to forgive me because you died on that old rugged cross to purchase my forgiveness. I believe it. I accept you. This moment, this moment, if you say yes to him as your Savior, he places a seal on you that nothing, not even Satan himself, through all eternity can touch you as one of his own. If you need him, he's waiting for you.